3: Tuesday Morning, the 2nd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It is time for change. That's the very clear message that came from the Sinn Féin Ordesh on Saturday.
4: The writing is on the wall for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They've been in government for far too long. <laughs>
3: Sinn Féin says there is an alternative to the traditionally ruling parties.
4: We need a government that shows up for you. A government for the people and a Taoiseach that puts you and your family first, now and always. So to those who have told me again and again to be sure to run enough candidates in the next all-election, I hear you loud and clear because... (laughs) Because, friends, friends, the time for change is now.
3: And if Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's days in government are numbered, who will lead an alternative government?
4: We want to lead that government. And I want to lead as Taoiseach, if you give us that chance. <laughs>
3: Uh, time for change, uh, time for Sinn Féin uh, to become uh, the establishment, uh, the lead party in government, time for Mary Lou MacDonald to become uh, the first woman Taoiseach. Some of the messages coming from Sinn Féin's Ordèche over the weekend and the President of Sinn Féin Mary Lou MacDonald joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There was a certain confidence uh, emanating uh, from your Ordèche uh, this weekend and little wonder I suppose because of how Sinn Féin are riding high in the polls, an upbeat Ordesh. I think your leader's speech uh, was very confident, very impressive in in that sense. uh, But uh, are you too confident, uh, perhaps? Uh, I think the last time I heard anybody so self-assured telling us uh, that they were going to become Taoiseach, it was Eamon Gilmore.
0: Well, good morning, Michael. uh, And it's nice to speak to you. There was certainly um, great energy at the Ordesh, I think, um, lots of that was because this is the first occasion that we were able to come together in any kind of numbers in person for a meeting like that. So there was a lot of, I suppose, pent up energy and, and goodwill. And we were just very, very appreciative, albeit that we could only meet in much smaller numbers that we could come together. And just to make something very, very clear from the outset, on from my part and from the party, We are not at all, at all um, cocky or at all um, self-regarding in in respect of our chances in being in in government. I come at this and we come at this in a spirit of hard work and humility and we are very clear and I am very clear that it will be the people at the next election who will make the decision by, by means of their vote as to who is elected and who ultimately... Um, takes office and, and who goes into government and who leads at the point I've been making consistently, Michael, throughout the last election, since the election, since we've been leading opposition, is that uh, it, it, there is no doubt that there it, it is time for change and a change in government. And I said during the last election that the the worst possible outcome would have been Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in government together. And I think I've been proven right in that regard. And we're very anxious to have a government that gets to grips with housing, that stands up for renters, that deals with the horrific uh, waiting list now in our health system, that deals with the pension issue in a fair fashion, that gets to grips with, with child care fees and the cost of living that's crushing people. And, of course, a government that is real and responsible in preparing for reunification for the constitutional change that's on the cards on our IDEs and uh, a government that deals with our environment and climate in a whole and a systemic way. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. So nobody should imagine that any of us would be resting on our laurels. This is all about... Uh, discipline and hard work at this right.
3: stage. Uh, and you want uh, a Citizens' Assembly to look at, at how yeah, the country absolutely. may be reunited and to bring people uh, along with uh, that proposal, which would begin, I suppose, uh, after uh, agreeing uh, the parameters with a uh, uh, border poll. Uh, but is it premature to start talking about that when you see what happened in Newton Yards yesterday uh, and fellows getting on a, a bus uh, with guns and then setting it on fire?
0: Well, no, it's not. And I I think um, what happened in Arts was correctly condemned uh, across the board. I think the the kind of political um, shenanigans and positioning, particularly by by the the DUP in respect of Brexit and the protocol, is with an eye to the next uh, election. I think that... um, Whereas we we obviously need to deal with the the challenges that have presented in respect of the protocol. We need to be clear that the protocol is necessary and that it has to work and that the institutions in the north have to work for Mm. everyone. Will it it work, though, if
3: there's armed men going around the place hijacking buses?
0: No, and that's Mm. absolutely outrageous and Mm. there's no place for that. And may I say, there's no appetite for that. I mean, even... The demonstrations that have been had in respect of the protocol and Brexit and the border in the Irish Sea, as they call it, have been very, very small. I mean, the vast, vast majority of people across the North uh, want to live peacefully, want to get on with their lives, mm. and know that Brexit w- was going to inevitably have very serious consequences. No that the protocol is necessary and I I speak to people in business and agriculture and in the community all all Mm. across the board and and what's required here is to make the arrangements work so the rest of the kind of hype and drama is most unhelpful and certainly Mm. anybody. What about the
3: work of government? Uh, Can the protocol work without an assembly and an executive because that's a a very real prospect isn't it given the power sharing uh, arrangements that are, are required to form a government in Northern Ireland and if uh, the unionists campaign in a few weeks time or in May or whenever the next election is on the basis uh, that they will not take their seats if the protocol remains in place then you're in trouble aren't you
0: well look I, I mean I mean if there, if if unionism political unionism is going to go down that road well then I think it, it causes all of us themselves included uh, a huge huge difficulty I mean, the, the reality is that Brexit has had very, very serious consequences across the continent, globally, mm. but most particularly uh, for us here uh, in this part of the world. And the British government agreed a protocol. I mean, we, we've discussed this many times, uh, Michael. That they have not demonstrated the type of uh, efficiency in their negotiations and, uh, I believe, goodwill and cooperation that that uh, could have made the passage of things much more smooth. I, I have to say that the European institutions have come at this in a very uh, flexible and open-minded way. We had a meeting with uh, uh, Sefcovic, uh, I think, on the 9th of September. Jeffrey Donaldson was at that meeting, as uh, was I. The leaders uh, uh, in the north uh, were all at that meeting. And he said at that time... I hear you. Mm. I understand that there are, that there are glitches, there are problems, there are challenges. Most significantly in in my view, yeah. the issue around availability of medicines. He said we will find solutions and in fairness and to their credit they have put solutions on the table. So Boris Johnson mm. and, then the and the
3: British came back with the ECJ. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. The, it
0: needs to be, I mean, and well, it
3: seems like they really don't want a, a deal, but the Unionists definitely don't want the protocol. And, and what kind of well, alternative? Look, well, look, what kind of alternative can be put in place without the formation of a government other than rule
2: from London?
0: Well, look. Well, look. Let's not jump ten steps ahead of ourselves. And let me just remind you, because I think this matters. The DUP do not speak, let me repeat, do not speak for the majority of people in the North on the issue of the protocol. And in fact, they don't speak or reflect the view of a majority of members of the Assembly. In fact, repeatedly in votes in the Assembly, the majority of elected representatives of the people of all persuasions have recognised that the protocol is necessary and have registered their support for it. Mm. So that's actually. But I think all of the political parties, the
3: unionist parties, will campaign on the basis of having the protocol removed. And if they don't take their seats, it doesn't matter who has the majority. And it's most likely that Sinn Féin will have the majority and Michelle O'Neill should be coming the first minister next time round. Uh, But that uh, is neither here nor there if uh, there is no government uh, to be formed because of uh, a lack of unionist cooperation.
0: Well, um, I I think that would be a a grave error on their part and I think would be a a most destructive course of action given that it's 23 years since we've signed the Good Friday Agreement and given the fact that whilst nobody can claim the merits of perfection for the process, uh, the peace process in that time, I think we can all agree that we are in a much better place, a much more stable place, than we were uh, all those uh, years ago. But to answer your question directly, nobody should make the mistake that it's a simple binary choice between um, the executive, the assembly, the, the power-sharing arrangements, or direct rule from London. That that is not the case, and um, there are many variations and permutations in between. And I have to say, for, for us in Sinn Féin, that would not be an acceptable outcome, I believe, for people. Across the island, it would not be an acceptable outcome. We're not turning back the clock here, Michael, Mm. and people who are yearning for the past and who want to disrupt things in the here and now need to understand there is no going back. We are not going back to conflict. We are not going back to single-party domination. The past is over, and our job now as political leaders and activists is to build the future. And I really hope, I really hope, that our uh, colleagues in unionism and the DUP in particular will come at that, come at everything in that kind of constructive frame of mind.
3: Okay, can I ask you uh, about uh, the special criminal court or the Sinn Féin motion uh, on courts that uh, would hear cases without juries, without people being tried in front of uh, their peers and the special arrangements that go in place with that? Uh, I think uh, your suggestion is that this would be modernised to the extent that the DPP would apply to a judge who would make a ruling on it uh, and if the judge ruled on it then that would be acceptable in Sinn Féin's view Uh, is that correct?
0: Well yes and this is a very significant decision that the Ordesh uh, has taken and uh, people have reflected myself included very deeply on this we have in the last election, you might recall, we had looked for a review of the emergency provisions and the Special Criminal Court. There hadn't been a review in over 20 years. The, the powers as they currently stand have been on the books for 80 years. They're clearly out of date. The current regime clearly is not acceptable for lots of reasons um, in terms of proper oversight and due process and so on. So the position that we have now landed on is true to, to reiterate that, of course, the very best outcome is that anybody facing any charge is uh, the case is heard before a jury of your peers. Um, But where difficulties arise, we have to um, set out alternatives, including anonymised juries, ways of keeping jurors safe, because the safety of a jury is part and parcel of due process. Uh, and vindication of of people's rights could
3: and that we, result that in, in members or former members of the Provisional IRA uh, appearing in front of the Special Criminal Court or at court uh, that hears a case against them without a, a jury? Legacy issues. Let's say uh, the investigation into Paul Quinn uh, results in some prosecutions, or of Tom well, Oliver look, or Jane McConville for that matter.
0: We we haven't we haven't differentiated, I and mean, you can't. You can't operate a court system on, on the basis of the who who is facing uh, charges, but what we have said is in circumstances, and they will be exceptional, they, they should be exceptional, where the DPP can make an application and say that there is evidence of jury tampering or serious intimidation, then a judge, not me, not you, not not mm. anyone else, but a judicial figure has the authority. To make a decision in those circumstances that there would be a trial uh, without a, a, a jury and of course all of this would have to be subject to human rights proofing and very very significant oversight because the, the, the courts have to serve us in the same way that Ingard the Siakana has to serve us and keep us safe but part and parcel of that is resourcing the system, making sure it's modern and fit for purpose but also making sure that there's very strong accountability monitoring and oversight. Mm. So that's so, to us. So right the, and Michael, I, I represent the inner city of Dublin mm. and I can tell you at first hand the people that I represent could write the book mm. on the kind oh, of we, misery that so-called gangland has brought. And,
3: and we know well about it in this part of the world is very, as It's well. very,
0: very real, as you know.
3: I, I know, but, well but, but it is a peculiar position for Sinn Féin uh, uh, and uh, I suppose the real interest in it is, is that if the arms of the state decided that a criminal case should be brought against a member or former member of the provisional IRA, the Sinn Féin leadership would support the state in taking that case against that person.
0: Well, I, I support the state. It would, the, the, we support the courts. Like, I mean, let's, let's not start getting any level of confusion here. If, if you break the law, any of us, it doesn't matter who you are, well, then you face the consequences of that and you face the courts. The issue that the Ordesh has decided is that in the exceptional circumstance, doesn't matter the who of who's on trial, but in circumstances where the DPP can demonstrate to a judge that there is a serious issue in terms of intimidation or jury uh, tampering, that a judge not Sinn Féin or anybody else a judge would have the discretion in those circumstances to order that a trial would be would be non-jury. And I think, unfortunately, that is a necessary uh, measure, just given the fact that, that we have to face down now uh, the kinds of criminality and gangs that, that believe that they are absolutely uh, untouchable. And to do that, we have to modernise the system. We need systems that are fit for purpose. And there is a review underway, we had called for that review in the last election. Martin Kenny, our justice spokesperson, worked with Charlie Flanagan when he was uh, justice minister. All of the Oireachtas has agreed to this review, and I think this is a real opportunity not to play politics or mm. point scoring, but let's get this right. The, the, the system has to work for us, has to work for society, to keep people safe, and, of course, to ensure fair procedures and the vindication of citizens' rights. We're not blind to that. That okay. is an important component.
3: Just one last question, if I can. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that 10,000 people are thereabouts, uh, marched in Navan over the weekend to save Navan Hospital. Our ladies hospital in Navan uh, is under some sort of threat. Have you any message uh, for people locally?
0: Well, I do I want to commend uh, the numbers uh, of people who came out onto the street. Of course, this is a very long-running campaign. I know my colleague Johnny Girk, I I think, spoke at that uh, campaign on behalf, at that demo on behalf of uh, Sinn Féin. It's very, very important that our hospital network is properly resourced and that people um, across the island have access to timely access to the services that uh, that they need. So my, my message would be to keep it up. This has been a long-running campaign, not to lose faith. And I know that the staff and those who rely on the hospital um, and in the wider community are deeply appreciative to everybody Who has has kept this campaign going?
3: Okay, and Sinn Fein, if in government uh, would reverse that national policy of uh, making Our Ladies a a level two hospital, taking away emergency and ICU and that sort of thing? Yes,
0: I've always made the point that, uh, you know, when these, I I accept that you can't have, you know, a a specialist hospital on every street corner. We need centres of excellence, but I also know that if you are in an accident, if you need uh, emergency, Attention! You need to have the services close to you, and um, this is all about fit-for-purpose services and infrastructure. And do you know what? There is. I, I'm also a believer that there's wisdom in the community. I'm not an advocate of NIMBYism or you know the kind of pandering politics that some people um, so dread. But I also believe in listening to communities and listening to the wisdom and the experience of people on the ground. I think that's a central component. Of good decision making and good government.
3: Okay. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. That's uh, Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, the Sinn Féin president.
0: Michael Michael Reid on LMFM.
3: Well, it seems like forever since uh, this pandemic has started, and there's uh, this ongoing talk about uh, a COVID uh, boost uh, for people, especially frontline workers, and how they could be rewarded in some way. One of the things that's been talked about, it seems forever at this stage, is a bank holiday. Uh, in order to thank people for the effort that they put in and, indeed, to remember those whose lives have been lost. Uh, The most recent talk around this uh, indicates that there could be a bank holiday tied in with St. Bridget's Day, which would be on the 1st of February, and that would mean, uh, if that is the thinking, that the bank holiday would fall on the Monday, the 31st of January. But there's also speculation that that could just be a one-off bank holiday. Uh, instead of it being an annual one. Uh, last time we spoke about this, uh, we were uh, told that there was a 20 million euro boost for tourism any time uh, there is a bank holiday, and we wondered why you wouldn't have one Every week, if that was uh, the case. Anyway, it's a bit like waiting for a bus, uh, I suppose. Uh, If uh, you're waiting this long as it seems to be for a bank holiday, maybe two will come along or three will come along uh, at the same time. That certainly would be the hope uh, for the People Before Profit party. Gino Kenny, who is a TD for Dublin Midwest, is on uh, the line. And a very good morning to you, Gino, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. This is something that uh, your party had previously proposed, that there would be three additional bank holidays.
5: Yeah, we proposed the bill in the summer in relation to three um, extra um, bank holidays, which would be on the 1st of February, last day in September, and the last day in November. Um, at the moment, Ireland is kind of lags behind our kind of European friends in relation to bank holidays and holiday entitlements. Uh, the average EU worker um, uh, works, or well, the average Irish worker would work two weeks more than the average uh, EU worker. So I think it's um, it's time to kind of, you know, not only a pandemic bonus, mm. but I think a bonus for um, workers in this country. And, I mean, the force of February is a very auspicious day, St. Bridget's Day. Uh, it makes sense that there, you know the bank holiday will be, the first bank holder, new bank holiday, will be next year. But the thoughts of thinking that it would be just a one-off would be just completely ludicrous. Mm. You know, whoever thought of that, I don't think that's, that's a runner at all. So I think uh 4th of February makes sense because between the 4th of January to um, uh, St. Bridget's Day it's it's in around what, over 60 days. Yeah. Um, so it does make mm. sense that, or sorry, from the 4th of St. Patrick's Day would be the bank holiday the nearest to January the 4th so it's over 77 days. So uh, it makes sense that you would have a bank holiday in around. Mm. And
3: There's also talk of uh, making it a, a four day weekend over St. Patrick's weekend uh, which uh, would be a bit questionable, would it, uh, to add a, an extra holiday in around St. Patrick's Day?
5: Yeah, I think that's been muted. Now, whether that's a runner, it's hard to know. Mm. Um, but, uh, obviously, we're proposing that, you know, there would be three extra bank holidays, including uh, the 1st of February. Mm. And uh, I think people are kind of, you know, assessing their own life in relation to, uh, you know, the life work balance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, and the government have kind of caught on to that, that, you know, People uh, want to kind of not work to live, but, mm. you know, um, so you want that balance, that kind of different balance in life. And uh, we need more kind of holidays to do that, to spend more time with our fan, friends and family and to kind of have more leisure time. Mm. And the kind of the, the knock on effect with that is that, as you said, in the in the kind of, um, you know, said that it would create um more kind of revenue in relation to tourism because yeah, when holiday people yeah. do travel, yeah, and that's good. That's good. That's, yeah. a, that's a very good thing.
3: Well, I, I'm sure the tourism hospitality industries uh, would be rubbing their hands together at the idea of an extra bank holiday or an extra three yeah. bank holidays if uh, there's 20 million uh, of a boost for those sectors every time round. Uh, but I take it there's also resistance uh, from other sectors.
5: Yeah, I think there is other kind of sectors in, in our society that would be resistant to that. I don't know why. But um, obviously they think that, you know, workers, you know, need to be kind of at their workplace all the time and kind of where there is more holidays, mm. you know, then there's less productivity. But, you know, uh, it's fact that when workers are more are happy, they're more productive. And mm. whether that's in your own home or your workplace or that kind of hybrid model, uh, you know, that that's kind of. It's 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 knowledgeable knowledgeable that you know where workers are in a a setting that they're happy and more productive. So it makes sense to
3: to to, to some degree. I mean, you can't open the shop if you're not in the shop. So if you open five days, you know, and so on. Uh, But it does bring us to that uh, idea of a four day week, which is also uh, starting to take hold with people.
5: Yeah, yeah, and this is uh, it's been again being muted by one of the trade unions. Um, You know, I think it's a great idea. I think. I think some countries in Europe are actually looking at, particularly France, uh, are looking at a four-day week. And uh, I think you know if you know if it can work, which I think it can, uh, because like a number of de- decades ago, uh, you know people were talking about like um, most people worked six days a week, mm. sometimes seven days a week, and then we had the weekend off. So hopefully, it's going to uh, we're going to look a different kind model of how we actually you know we work yeah and that model is hopefully is a four day week mm. and uh, you know I think you know where people again where people are you know not kind of tied to their job mm. you know that can have a knock on effect to their family life, their own kind of personal well being and their productivity in in their workplace so if that can work. I think, mm. why, not? why not look at a four-day week? Yeah, well,
3: you know, there's, I suppose, uh, swings and roundabouts with all of this sort of thing as well because, uh, I mean, I think, uh, going back 30, 40 years, people would have worked five and a half days a week. Yeah. Uh, Saturday morning was a regular thing. Uh, and then anything after that was overtime. Now there's very little uh, in the way of overtime, exactly. but there's plenty of emails coming in, text messages coming exactly. at all hours of the day.
5: Exactly, Michael. There's no such thing as triple time. Even double time, you know, for workers that work on a Sunday, mm. you know, um, not so long ago, if you worked on a Sunday in retail, you got triple time. Mm. Now you don't get; you just get a flat rate. So you know, you know, workers are working much much harder uh, for less pay. So that has to be reversed. You know, there has to be. I mean, some people have to work on a Sunday, Saturday, and kind of unsociable hours. That's understandable, but they should be paid. You know, re- you know, rewarded for that, and you know, there should be a balance. But the pandemic has shown the world that, you know, the the rules of engagement, um, particularly around workers' rights, have completely changed. Completely changed. And, you know, governments in situ have copped on to that, that there has to be not only a temporary bonus, but there has to be a permanent bonus for workers that are actually in this state.
3: Okay, we'll leave there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for thank joining you. us uh, and uh, maybe uh, we'll meet up uh, on uh, the 1st of January or or the 31st of January uh, when we're all off for the day uh, but thank you indeed uh, Gino, Kenny, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest now thanks uh, to Declan who was in touch with us on the phone to us uh, this morning he says he agrees with Mary Lou MacDonald we are in a much better place in Northern Ireland but Declan says he, he fears that a return to the troubles could happen very quickly still which we got a, a glimpse of in recent times with the violence on the streets although the DUP only represents a small proportion of people in the six counties we have to threat very carefully even though they cannot be allowed to dictate to everyone else. Thanks uh, very much uh, for that Declan. I think uh, you're right uh, in that sense but I think what happened in newton Ard's yesterday morning was uh, particularly scary with men getting on the bus talking political stuff uh, about the protocol uh, with guns in their hand. Uh, Tony says he'd like us to ask Mary Lou MacDonald what they're doing with uh, the money uh, that was left to them in a uh, will from William Hampton. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid Mary Lee McDonald has uh, gone off the line, Tony, but thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme this morning. Lots of calls, texts and uh, different messages coming to us in different ways this morning. We'll come to more of those uh, comments as we go through the programme this morning but in the meanwhile, you're more than welcome to get in touch with us if you would like to make a comment on the programme today. Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM FM. Now to that good news from Meath County Council. Yes, uh, the way vehicles will no longer be seen on Betty's town beach uh, parking band uh, from uh, the beach and uh, I suppose uh, that's the good news. It's also the easy bit. Uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, the hard bit now. We're joined by Fine Gael Councillor Sharon Tolan who's been pushing this for years. Good morning to you Sharon. Thanks uh, for morning. joining us on uh, the programme this morning. As I say, that's the good news. It's the easy bit to some degree. The hard bit comes next uh, and where are people going to park I suppose is the next question. Yeah.
1: Well, look I think that the, the difficult bit has been made the desi- making the decision, to be honest with you, Michael. I mean a lot of people really um were hesitant in, in, in making such a change. Um people don't like change and uh you know it it was it took a lot to convince um my fellow councillors over the last five hundred and eighty eight days we've now had of car free beaches. Um we have delivered almost five hundred additional parking spaces in that time. Uh, Fantasia have opened their car park as a public car park. There's 184 spaces, literally yards away from um, mm. Betty's town entrance. Uh, it is a flat rate fee of €4 euro per day. Kalosh um, and Hinch provide 120 spaces at the weekends, and also during the summer months free of charge. Uh, the new car park at uh, the end of Tara Road has 83 spaces, they're free parking spaces again a three minute walk from mm. the newly refurbished entrance onto the beach there at Brookside Stream our Tidy Towns uh, received a grant and refurbished that entrance and then we have 98 spaces um, in Laytown another refurbished car park at the Laytown uh, beach entrance and also an overflow car park um, I suppose the point that I made yesterday at the meeting, you know, here yesterday we had two thousand visitors uh, to the late ten races, and all of those were accommodated uh, without parking illegally in any way, shape, or form. Now, If we can accommodate two thousand visitors to the beach for the late ten races once a year. Uh, we should be capable of, of catering for a couple of hundred or a few hundred people, whatever mm. amount of people will visit on a sunny day. Um, and it's about encouraging people as well. We're yeah. very well... But well, is uh,
3: the parking close enough to Betty's I suppose, is uh, the other question. And is all of the parking that you mentioned there uh, enough? Uh, because uh, the parking at Fantasia has been there for years on end, hasn't it? And it well, was, it hasn't it, it, it was fr- Well, it was free for a long time, wasn't it? I, I, I mean... Well,
1: only for the for the business users so yeah so, so where
3: the do they go who now are,
1: who are going to <laughs> no well I mean people who were who are going into Fontasia yeah. uh, and it's no longer um, so where do they park a, a now? children's park it's no longer a children's park um in Fontasia. so um I mean there, there was ample uh, capacity throughout the summer um and uh, you know there, there weren't mm. any difficulties with, with using Fontasia if you want to park that close Mm. Um, and it's about trying to encourage people we're very well facilitated here uh, on the, the bus uh, uh, and also by train mm. um, and certainly the buses run every 15 minutes in and out of Drogheda mm. um, so you know it's about trying to encourage people certainly the visitors uh, that have visited it while it's been car free have all enjoyed a much safer, a much cleaner beach course, uh, than yeah, it ever yeah, was yeah, yeah.
3: but it was chaotic at times over the summer wasn't it?
1: Uh, we had a number of chaotic days early on um, in the summer with p- illegal parking along along the uh, the coast road there, the Golf Links Road. And um, the Gardaí had to, to, to step up to the place and uh, they did. Mm. Um, they issued tickets on the first weekend um, and I, I believe a couple of hundred of them were issued. And then the following weekend they put down cones very early in the morning and there was no issue with illegal parking so because people found
3: pe- because people found the parking yeah because it i think if i remember parking. back you were critical of the signage and that sort of thing
1: exactly mm. yeah it's about just i suppose education and awareness and making sure that when people visitors arrive they know exactly where there are Car parks available. Um, I have to commend New County Council also. They did a huge piece on on the social media campaign too, and with yourselves on on the radio and in local newspapers. Um, uh, you know, mm. making sure that people were well informed uh, in advance that there was no parking allowed on the beach and where the available parking was, what par- car parks were charging and what were free. Um, so look at we. As far as I can see, we have ample parking, car parking now. It's about ensuring that people know about them and use them effectively. Why is Ballystown so
3: popular, do you think? I mean, there's a fabulous uh, shoreline all the way uh, along the coast, uh, whether it's from Laytown or Gormanston, uh, right up to the border and beyond for that matter.
1: Well, I mean, exactly. It is a fabulous location. It's sandy, mm. it's safe. And, um, you know, it's such a long stretch as well, Michael. Mm. But why would
3: people right. go to Bettystown instead of Thurman Feckin or to Mornington or to Clorahead? Uh, Clorahead is probably as busy as, as Bettystown, but you know what I mean?
1: Well, we, we have the local amenities as mm. well. You know, we have the local shops, the local ice cream shops, the local coffee shops, you know, even the chippers and mm. stuff. You know, so we have the local amenities. And, you know, it has got to have been a, a, a very, very positive uh, impact for local businesses as well, other than those that had to be closed during COVID. All of the businesses have all indicated to me that business was up because footfall was up past their businesses as well. So okay. it's a win win.
3: Great stuff. Okay, thank you, Sharon. Thanks indeed for joining Thanks us really, this morning. That's uh, Finnegale Councillor Sharon Tolan
6: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
3: I suppose protesting outside of politicians' homes is nothing new. Many of you will remember a protest taking place outside of Dermot Hearn's house when he was the Minister for Justice, or indeed more recently, Jed Nash uh, when he was uh, Minister for the Labour Party in government. More recently though there have been more of these pro- protests and indeed they're becoming commonplace. Simon Harris and Leo Radker uh, have uh, had protests outside of their homes recently as indeed has uh, the Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan. Under new legislation being proposed this will be an offence which could see a fine of 5,000 euro or 12 months in prison if people are convicted of committing this offence. It's being proposed by Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne who's on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Why the need for this legislation do you think?
7: Uh, Good morning Michael. Well I would hope that we would never have had to have uh, the need for this legislation. Um, The right to protest in Ireland it's a very important right and the overwhelming majority of protests Uh, that take place around the country. Uh, They're peaceful. Um, People do it in a respectful way, but still make sure that their voice is heard. But unfortunately, we have seen, as you said, uh, the rise in a small number of protests uh, by fringe groups on the far left, but increasingly on the far right, uh, outside individuals' homes, not just politicians. We've seen medics targeted, as you mentioned. Uh, We've also seen journalists uh, and, and quite frankly, I don't think that it's acceptable. I think most of your listeners mm. uh, won't view it as acceptable. Yeah. If you want to protest about a government decision, protest outside Leinster House, protest outside the government department, protest outside somebody's constituency office,
3: or up outside um, RTA, if that's the way you feel. I mean, or, I think you're talking about. RTA, I think you are talking about a protest outside of Joe Duffy's house in Clontarf.
7: Yeah, yeah. but if mm. I had like if I had a, a, a disagreement with. You know, something that LMFM was doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, I would strongly defend an individual's right to protest outside the LMFM studios, but I don't think it would be appropriate uh, to allow a protest take place okay. outside your private home. Ex-
3: explain own. to us what the difference is, if you would.
7: Well, the, the difference is, is, is you're talking about a balance of rights. So the right to protest is something that's very important. It is protected by the Constitution. But what is also protected by the Constitution is an individual's right to privacy. Uh, And I think everybody regards their own home as their private space. Uh, And if, if, if some of these protests are taking place outside an individual's homes, it's not just that individual it's, who's affected; it's their family. You're often talking about children being involved, mm. and also their neighbours. Uh, and I, I think it's important, as I said, it's unfortunate we have to introduce this legislation. Uh, but we have seen, you know, these small fringe groups; they're becoming more abusive. Um, but to target an individual's home, that—that um, that in my view is, is a step too far. Um, there are some powers the guardy have. Um, But what this legislation does is gives them a very specific power uh, in the case of somebody who is organising or taking part in a targeted protest Mm. uh, against an identified individual.
3: I think a lot of us were truly disgusted to learn recently of how a protest was held outside somebody's house. Somebody else uh, who was living in that house was subjected to lewd homophobic uh insults uh, a really dreadful situation uh, for somebody going about their everyday business.
7: Yeah, and 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 this this is part of the point. I mean, uh, and you know, we we really we should value in a democracy the fact that we have a the right to protest. It's something that is really really important, but with every right that we have there are also mm. responsibilities. Uh and unfortunately we have seen, you know, the rise of some of these extreme groups um you know, there there are very genuine concerns now around politician safety. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I, I would hope we'd never have had to bring in legislation like this. Um, but I do think that it is important. You've, you've got to remember that in Ireland, no matter how much you dislike us, um, our politicians are always very accessible. People in the need will know that you're going to be able to go up to your councillors, senators, mm. ministers, mm you can raise issues with them personally you can even in Ireland walk up to the teachers and let you know let him know what you think about a particular issue mm. um it would be horrible that you know if we were to lose uh, that level of accessibility, yeah.
3: um, and I, I don't, I don't yes, think people generally speak <laughs> dislike politicians. I mean, we all give out, of course, we do, but that's all part of uh, the natural democratic way of, of having your say. And you'll give out about people, and sometimes you'll go too far, and so on. But I think generally people uh, appreciate the work that politicians do, and they rely on them, and they uh, certainly do appreciate them when they need them. Uh, but uh, how would legislation like this work? Uh, because I can understand. Uh, the point that you're making about uh, trying to stop people from protesting outside of uh, people's homes. But in uh, practice, uh, does that mean you couldn't uh, demonstrate outside a politician's home or Does it mean that you couldn't demonstrate outside a public figures home And because you mentioned uh, Joe Duffy and Tony Hoolan and so on? Uh, Because there are times that people want to protest outside other people's homes. Uh, People remember the 1970s Tony Gregory mobilising people uh, who went up to heroin dealers uh, in Dublin to protest uh, to bring about an end to that. And that's a, a different sort of story altogether.
7: Yeah, that, 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 that's a, a, a different situation. What this is... But is, how do you
3: differentiate in the uh, law?
7: Well, well what, what you do is that you, you talk about the nature of the protest, that it is, if it is targeted at a specific individual. Um, so certainly, you know, if you, have pro- if you have a general protest in an area where you are campaigning against, you know, drugs or whatever, and you're making a statement, that differentiates itself from a targeted protest... As a named individual, uh, and it's 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 really, I suppose, about right, you know, it, it, people can't take the law into their own hands. It's up to the you know the guardian and the courts to make him in certain circumstances. Mm. What we're talking about here is where public figures, who simply because they're exercising their duty, uh, attract um, you know a, a, a level of protest that is uh, unacceptable. What this legislation will do is that it will prohibit um, those targeted protests within 200 metres of those individuals.
3: Mm, Okay. Well, it's uh, an interesting uh, idea. Um, I don't know uh, how it would go down with those people who are involved in these type of of protests uh, because they seem to have uh, their own understanding of what is law and what is not law uh, or what laws apply to them if they've accepted those laws and signed into a contract and all of this other stuff that people are reading about on the internet.
7: Well, well. listen, the law is very clear, Michael. The law is the same law that applies to everybody. It is the courts that interpret the law and the Constitution. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the other things that we're actually launching a report today yeah, on the... Uh, online Safety and Media Regulation bill, uh, which will establish a media commission which we 'll look yeah. at for the first time, regulating some of the social media companies to tackle some of the fake news and disinformation yeah. uh, that 's out there. Yeah. Um, the law on the Constitution applies to everybody in an equal way, and some of those people who are saying that they have a right to protest, they need to also learn that there are responsibilities that come with that right including respecting an individual's right to privacy, but also not to be engaging in, what they do in many cases, racist and homophobic uh, abuse. Um, for us as politicians, and we deserve criticism many times, but we need to stand up for the reputation of politics mm. and for our democracy generally. And do we need
3: more than that? I mean, do we need hate speech offences? Not sure how... Uh, widely publicised it was, but I think a lot of people uh, on the internet would have seen uh, some terrible things said about the President of Ireland at a a protest uh, that took place uh, in Dublin not so long ago.
7: Well, well, we do. I mean, the government is going to be moving uh, on hate speech legislation, um, which is not, by the way, and and this is an important thing to say, freedom of expression is very important. It's about allowing people to say exactly what they think about the government or politicians or anybody else. Mm. But if when that descends into... Uh, Lies
3: you know, and accusations of, of criminality. Abuse. Yeah.
7: Accusations mm. of criminality. Uh, you know, then then there is the case of the responsibility that goes with that. And, and, and look, as we know, it's not just that it's been directed against politicians. I mean, we saw what happened, for instance, to some of the young footballers mm. on the English football team, uh, you know, during the summer um, when they were subjected to horrendous racists. Uh, abuse, and I think most people don't believe that that's acceptable. Um, we're going to be looking, as I said, as, as part of the the Online Safety Media Regulation Bill that the government is publishing. There will be a new Online Safety Commissioner. Uh, his or her role will be to deal with some of the online abuse uh, that we've been talking about, um, but also dealing with stuff like the algorithms that are directing, uh, say, you know, young people who may be suffering from eating disorders that are directing them to sites that promote anorexia or bulimia Mm. and we've got to look at regulating online harms as well and as I said, this right, is and not feeds that feeds into
3: that evidence given by that Facebook whistleblower uh, to uh, congressmen and so on. Yeah, but uh, do yeah. you do you understand uh, these people who are protesting outside of uh, the houses of politicians or the CMO, for example? I mean, we've just been through something that none of us could have ever imagined, uh, and we're still going through it. And uh, I mean, there was nearly three thousand new cases of COVID yesterday, uh, and we've uh, people going on with all sorts of nonsense, saying there isn't COVID uh, and uh, they're just trying to kill us and uh, this is a way of depopulating the planet and uh, this is big drug companies trying to make money and Bill Gates and George Soros and all this sort of stuff which I think a lot of people have heard at this stage. And, you know, on the face of it, you'd say, actually, there's something wrong with these people. I mean, who, who on earth would protest outside Dr. Tony Houlihan's house when all the man has done is uh, get us through this best as possible? Uh, and you, you, you can't help but think there's something wrong with these people. They're just... but. But, but you talk to some of these people and they seem fairly sane, a lot of them. And, and I can't understand why they're being drawn into all of this nonsense. Have you any understanding of
7: that? Well, Michael, you can't vaccinate against stupidity and ignorance. Um, all of the scientific evidence over history has shown very clearly that vaccines work. Um, we, we place our trust in these scientists and medics Uh, you know, all of the evidence is there laid um, before us. Um, I personally will always take my advice um, from, you know, the overwhelming majority of Mm -hmm. scientists and medics around the world, rather than a couple of articles that I read uh, on the internet. Um, And I would encourage people to do that. You know, rather than just sharing anything on the internet. Ask people, you know, what's the source of this information? Mm. Is it backed up? Um, is it backed up by by research? Um, you know, it's 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 a bit odd. I mean, the same people who are protesting around all their medics giving you know them, their advice. Mm. If they if they become ill, do they use the same health system? Uh, you know, medics and trust the same medics mm. to deal with them when, when you know they they have to face another oh, no, of course I, they do, I just, yeah well uh, they have to know, i
3: mean uh, that's that's just uh <laughs> you know there's no option um, there, but
7: but is there a paranoia is there a
3: paranoid complex or something because they seem to think that everybody is out against them
7: yeah, well look there, there have always been conspiracy theories in in uh, in history, and mm. i you know i i'm not for one moment going to say that the government that uh, you know we 've got everything right over mm-hmm. the last mm-hmm. year and a half, there was no handbook for this pandemic, and if you look at the experiences right around the world. No government's got everything right, um, but I think if we look at what we have achieved in Ireland, where we've one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, you know, where we have come through this, uh, and I mean, government policy has been, you know, to mm. uh, as we do that we open up things safely and securely. And I appreciate that there are still problems, but I think most people recognise the fact that Ireland is in a lot better place now than in many other parts of the world. Yeah. We've still a lot, we've still a lot got to do and and it's important therefore that we listen as well to trusted news sources i mean it's mm. you know if you broadcast something on lmfm you know before you broadcast it you have to check your news sources you double check mm. you make sure uh, as far as you can that you don't broadcast something mm. that's defamatory or untrue yeah. a lot of these people who are spouting nonsense on the internet uh, and shouting abuse outside politicians and other people's homes you know they're not bound by mm. by the same rules Um, So I I do think it is time that we start to, to, as politicians, that we start to stand up and defend... Uh, a profession and what we do
3: would 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 it require uh, uh, amending the constitution? Uh, does uh, this require a referendum? Uh, because that seems to be the case uh, with uh, stopping protests outside of uh, hospitals and healthcare centres that provide uh, abortion, for example.
7: No, I mean uh, that that wouldn't be my interpretation. I mean that that would obviously be a matter ultimately for the courts to decide. Um, but I think that there is as I said, there is a balancing here between um, the uh, the right to protest and the right to privacy. Mm. And while the Constitution does uphold the right to protest, it also upholds, and going right back to the McGee case, uh, the right uh, to privacy, the right to family life within in an individual's own home. That is also, by the way, protected under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. There was a similar case from 1988 called Frisbee and Schultz Uh, a Wisconsin case that went to the US Supreme Court where in the state of Wisconsin they introduced legislation that prohibited uh, targeted protesting outside individuals' homes in that case it was protests outside the homes of doctors uh, and the US Supreme Court upheld it where it was specific enough uh, to talk about targeted protesting outside Mm. of individuals' homes so I I certainly believe that this legislation would uphold it would Mm. Uh, be upheld against any constitutional challenge. That's obviously ultimately for the Supreme Court, but uh, as I said, you would you would hope that you wouldn't have to go down this r- route. You would hope that <laughs> yeah. you know, if people are going to protest, <laughs> there appropriate you know, places yeah, to do it, yeah, yeah. not outside an individual. And it goes back home. to
3: what I was saying, you know, what's wrong with people who are doing this sort of thing? And, uh, and that's not a question that is easily answered, I, I don't think, uh, but... Uh, I think, unfortunately, there is a need for your legislation. Whether it would stand up, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, time will tell, and we'll watch it closely. But thank you, indeed, uh, for telling us about it and for joining us for that matter this morning. That's Fina Fall, Senator Malcolm Byrne, Michael,
6: Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
3: Now, as you know, three and a half thousand healthcare workers are out of work because they're sick with COVID or they have been a close contact with somebody who has the virus as a result uh, NIAC has decided to to give booster vaccines uh, to healthcare workers let's speak to kevin Figus, ciptu's health division organizer good morning to you kevin and thanks for joining us on the program this morning uh, what does this decision mean in, in reality nurses and doctors will get the booster vaccines will everybody working in healthcare get a, a booster
2: good morning Well, well. First of all, I think it is important to say that the decision itself uh, is welcome. Uh, However, uh, I think it it is right that we would sort of question sort of how long it took to get there, uh, given the fact that, as you said, there are such high absenteeism arising from uh, either COVID direct infections or uh, an absenteeism related uh, to COVID, be that close contact, etc. In addition to that. There's also the situation where, I mean, a number of weeks ago, the HSC advised ourselves that they were in a position to vaccinate once they were given approval. They also told us that there was no issue with supply, that there was plentiful Mm. in relation to the actual vaccine itself. So it it is a concern that, I suppose, it took as long as it did and it was drawn out as long as it did. Healthcare workers are working in a really, really Mm. uh, challenging um, uh, environment there's a huge strain on, the, on on health services. And that's not the union saying that. Uh, we, while we are, it's in a, the HSE themselves are saying well, it. Well, the workers are um, sick.
3: The workers want it. The unions have been calling for it. I heard Tony Houlihan, the CMO, say he expected it to happen. Uh, that was last week. I think I also heard Paul Reid, uh, the HSE CEO, say uh, that he, he felt it should happen. Uh, but uh, everybody waited for NIAC to make this decision, as you say.
2: Yeah. and And, and you know, and... Like, like obviously when, when large amounts of healthcare workers go uh, sick or are absent due to a COVID-related absence, it then puts massive strain on those that are still in the system. Because, you know, you can't just all of a sudden uh, replace those with immediate effects. The people who are there have to take the strain of those that aren't there. Um, and, you know, like, like just to give you one example, Michael, which I think is a really good example, I mean, the HSE has spent the last number of weeks and and short months going around the long-term residential centres, vaccinating the over 65s in those centres, and under the the directions at the time, not vaccinating the healthcare workers who were looking after those people. Mm. So it seems absolutely incredible that you have a situation where the HSE now, because there was never an issue of supply, so the HSE now has to go back to those same centres and vaccinate the people that the last time they said we're not allowed to vaccinate you.
3: Right. Uh, and will the boosters be made available to everybody working in healthcare, And that uh, includes the nurses and the doctors. Does it include the care assistants and the porters, uh, the kitchen staff and so on?
2: Well, well from a safety perspective, it's going to have to include everybody because everybody is obviously at risk. We, we do remember that when the, the vaccines were being given out the first time, health care workers were amongst the first to be vaccinated, quite rightly after those living in the long-term residential care centres. And as we know, uh, uh, the information and the research that's been presented is suggesting a waning uh, of the effectiveness of the vaccine. So therefore, logic would suggest that you you should go back to those most at risk and you should go back to those that were amongst the first uh, uh, to receive it. So from our perspective, we have an absolute expectation that all healthcare workers uh, will be uh, protected um, and there was a sequencing the last time that those with direct effect uh, um, with patient care etc etc so we would imagine that some type of uh, um, a rollout out would be applied we're actually meeting the HSE tomorrow in relation to the vaccine uh, programme so we're hoping that we will receive that type of uh, uh, clarity but I think it is important you know that where you have healthcare workers putting their lives at under risk on behalf mm. of all of us If somebody says, what should we do to protect them? The simple answer is everything. You should do everything you can to protect them. When you look at the current infection rates, uh, um, 4.8% of the total infections are healthcare workers. When you look at the infection rates, 43% of all infections between September and October were fully vaccinated people. And when you also look at the the stats, 44% of deaths, Uh, between April and October were of vaccinated people. Mm. So the vaccine is obviously working to a degree, but it is not a a sort of um, an overall solution that while it is protecting people, it is not absolutely making sure that people are not infected and it is also not limiting the risk of of serious uh, infection or even death. You're not so bulletproof as
3: Philip Nolan said some time ago and you certainly aren't if uh, the vaccine is waning and that is why you're looking for the boosters for everybody but if you want to do everything for uh, healthcare workers to protect them does that not make sure that everybody is vaccinated uh, who they have to work uh, alongside or work with for that matter uh, and should it not be mandatory for healthcare workers to get vaccinated?
2: The position of the HSE, Michael, and this this is a really important point, the position of the HSE and the Department of Health is that they are not going to have a mandatory vaccine policy. The trade unions have done everything we can to promote the taking of the vaccine by healthcare workers working within the health service. If it's a situation that a healthcare worker decides in line with the policy of the HSE... Uh, um, that they're not going to be vaccinated, well, that person will be mandatorily risk assessed. And if it's a situation that it is deemed that they could pose a risk, well, then there are a a list of options that are available to the management in in how to deal with that matter. Uh, And they may include up to and including a redeployment to a position where they're not deemed to be at risk.
3: Is that what's happening? Uh, and has this been causing problems between people, uh, those who are and who aren't vaccinated?
2: Um, well, it, it, I mean, it, 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 it does cause issues because uh, one of the main issues that it causes is that if you have people that are being redeployed, uh, it is then also another factor where it is putting strain on healthcare workers who are providing uh, um, a service uh, and are vaccinated. So it, it is causing issues, but it's really important, I think, to underline uh, the the policy that was chosen by the HSC and the Department of Health was one where they would uh, encourage vaccination by educating people to the benefits of the vaccine. That is their policy. It's not a policy that, you know, that was negotiated or whatever. That is their policy, and their policy is is that if a, a healthcare worker chooses not To be vaccinated, they will be mandatorily risk assessed with a view of determining uh, um, to what degree they they pose a risk due to their decision.
3: Okay, well, uh, I gather the majority of healthcare workers will be very happy to accept a a booster vaccine uh, and hopefully that will help protect them. And we'll see these numbers of absentee. workers uh, change and that uh, people will be well a- again and able to come to work and uh, to look after those who are sick for that matter. Kevin, thank you indeed though for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Figgis, SIP2 Health Division Organiser.
6: Michael
3: Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now to the and housing estate in uh, Dundalk and uh, a number of issues of uh, concern. Uh, Their Sinn Féin councillor Kevin Meenan is on the line and a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us indeed. Uh, you were raising some issues with uh, the new superintendent last week, uh, which include uh, uh, a lot of burglaries uh, taking place, and indeed uh, the fire at the weekend, uh, which uh, destroyed a house. Uh, what's going on?
8: Thanks, Michael, for having me on. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, it, there's been an alarming uh, amount of incidents of break-ins to properties over the last number of weeks. Uh, word on the street is that it's, it's a number of different. Uh, Gangs, small gangs, who are doing this, and it's uh, breaking into both some of the empty houses and taking boilers out, but also then breaking into houses where people are living and ransacking them, taking TVs and whatever. Uh, so we we had raised this with this, but what we also have as well, we've a number of houses where there's people coming coming and going to uh, where there's there's people living there with say with addiction issues, and th- this is causing concern for some of the residents who live around them. And as a back on the back of this, for example, in Crescent Two, where the house, the firehouse, the fire off took place at the weekend, we have probably two houses in there that would be of concern, where there's a lot of people coming and going to, uh, and ultimately then in that one street we had I think about five or six robberies in the last two weeks. So all this we 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 raised with the the superintendent as I said and and we've had the the burning of a house then Mm. and and there's other issues there with this as well but in regards to
3: and and what's the story with the boilers Kevin Uh, is that uh, for copper?
8: Yeah, for cardboard right. and then taken down to to local scrapyards, and we've we've highlighted this with with the with the guards.
3: And I take it um, the house was flooded then, is it?
8: Yeah, this this, this happened actually the weekend before. Oh. We had two houses, that, two houses that I'm aware of that I had to ring the council on a sal- on the Saturday morning to say that there had been break-ins at both properties. One was an empty house, and one was a house where somebody actually stayed in. They just forced oh. the door and, and and took this and broad daylight.
3: And, uh, and the boiler is and one and thing, but the damage is another, isn't it? I mean, when this yeah, happens, it, it's, it was very commonplace a few years ago. I haven't heard of it for a while, uh, but the amount of water that comes out uh, when you do that uh, it really destroys the house.
8: Yeah, it does, and as yeah, a, right, there was somebody yeah. living in the house a, a, at the time. Uh, a, a, but but there's, there's other issues here. We, we flagged mm. this up with, with the housing section in terms of some of the residents that we have living in some of the houses who would have, say, addiction issues, mm. they, they tend to become overrun with people coming and going to the house. They haven't got the skills to say, that like, you're not coming in or whatever. Right. It's you not, know, that it's somebody not a squat. Some,
3: houses. Some, some yeah,
8: the, they, come, they become dens and, and heritage shooting up houses or crack houses wherever you yeah. want to call them, but that's what they become and, and you have residents in a lot of cases elderly mm. residents who live beside these and they're being completely tortured as I say this has escalated to the point where we've had a lot of break-ins over the last number of weeks we've urged people to mm. uh, what's their security in terms of when to leave the house if they're sticking to set times uh, we, we've also learned the guards, the guards in terms of who we think or we believe are involved because it's at this stage it's common knowledge who they are.
3: Yeah of course it's always the way uh, but very little tends to happen or at least that's quite often the case uh, and uh, I take it that somebody is the official tenant in the house that we're talking about.
8: Yeah, somebody it, but he wasn't there at at, 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 uh, at that point. Right. And, and is that a council tenant? Has,
3: has the council any role in this?
8: Yeah, they have a huge role, uh, uh, I, I think, but they haven't got the, the capabilities, uh, not, not through their own fault. I think this leads in terms of tenant sustainment, we have, for example, when somebody becomes homeless, we have a new thing, uh, Housing First, where you put somebody into a house and mm. you put the services around them to maintain them in the house. We should be doing that with some of the existing tenants that we have. We have people here who just who we have just let uh, live
3: in the house. We we haven't taken any yeah. care and attention to well, them, and, we, and the house yeah.
8: becomes becomes wrecked. Uh, yeah. They have addiction issues. They can't manage the house.
3: Well, there's a balance of right. rights, of course. I mean, as you were yeah. saying, there's the neighbours, like, uh, uh, and yeah, yeah, what but, about their rights? I mean, the council can't be renting out a crack house.
8: No, no, they can't. And, and, and they say we allow these things to develop over time because we haven't got the resources to, to deal with them. And, and then we end up pay, picking up a hefty tab in terms of, of the cost of all of this. Joe, in terms of the services who were there fire services, guards at the scene yesterday, all of this, mm. uh, which could have been averted a long time ago if the services are there to go down, sit with the tenant, establish that there's a problem there, walk with the tenant so it doesn't escalate to a point where we have to spend all this money, there's a house burn. People moved out of their houses. Oh. And uh, and the fire and was drug-related, was it? Pardon?
3: The fire was drug-related, was it?
8: Well, yeah, there, was, there was people who had been coming in at the house who had who had issues in, in regards to that. So you could say in terms of that, it wasn't in terms of a drug debt or anything like that that I'm aware of. Mm. It was just some type of fallout. And uh, as I say, there's not too much more to say in terms of that.
3: Right. Uh, it wasn't an attack on the house, was it?
8: Yeah, it may have been. There was right, a row, okay. I, I believe, I, I believe there was a row not involved okay. outside the House in OK, all right,
3: yeah. yeah but not uh, as a result of a death, OK. Uh, what did the superintendent have to say about all of this, anyway?
8: As fairness he's only new into the post, mm. I find him very good, constructive. Mm. He, he took all our concerns on board. He, he has given us his mobile number that so we can keep in constant contact with him. He seems to be very proactive uh, so I would be encouraged from the meeting that we had. Uh, there's also just one, or, one other issue here, and yeah. it stems also back to the, the state of the housing that we have as well, because I think there's an issue in merits. These houses that, 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 where took, the fire took place or, or bungalows near the school, these should have been probably condemned years ago. Uh, I think the house is not very, very easy, and that has raised a lot of concerns for the existing tenants who are living around these that there's a possible fire hazard do and uh and someone would have mobility issues and may not get out of the house just as quickly as you or I would get out. So I think that's something I'm going to be raising tonight at the Council
3: meeting. Very good. Kevin, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin Councillor Kevin Meenan. Now let's uh, go to COP26 and uh, the reason why some of uh, the world leaders, uh, over 120 uh, of them for that matter, meeting yesterday and today. The Taoiseach uh, will be making his address and outlining the commitments uh, that Ireland uh, will make uh, to reducing global warming. It seems as though Ireland is committed to reducing methane on a global level by Thirty percent, but uh, the way the world is getting warmer is having a terrible effect on certain corners of the world.
4: You all have the power here today to be better, to remember that in your meeting rooms and drafting documents are more than just black and white objects, to remember that in your words, you wield the weapons that can save us or sell us out. Today, the climate is warming,
6: the animals are disappearing, the rivers are dying, and our plants don't flower like they did before. The Earth is speaking. She tells us that we have no more time. Indigenous peoples are in the front line of the climate emergence. And we must be at the centre of the decisions happening here.
3: Climate activists from Samoa and Brazil inside COP26. Outside, there were a number of protesters, including Greta Thunberg.
6: You can shove your climate crisis up your arse. You can shove your climate crisis up your arse. You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis crisis up your arse.
3: A lively crowd outside of uh, the COP26 with uh, Greta Thunberg and uh, obviously a lot of uh, those who were there were anxious to hear what she had to say about COP26.
6: This COP26 is so far just like the previous COPs and that has led us nowhere. They have led us nowhere. Inside COP, there are just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, pretending to take the present seriously of the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. We say no more blah blah blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. No more blah blah blah. No more whatever the f*** they're doing inside there. sick and tired of it, and we're going to make the change, whether they like it or Come not.
9: Yeah. They have been
6: keep on going for too long. Yes. <laughs> we're not going to let them get away anymore. Yes. We are not.
3: Yes. Because who are
6: we? Yes. And what are we going to do? <laughs> Climate justice. That yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. What do we SHUT yeah.
3: Okay, that's uh, Greta Thunberg outside of uh, COP26 with a, a number of protesters. No more blah, blah, blah. Let's have a little bit more blah, blah, blah. Uh, the British Prime Minister to people to Glasgow.
10: Welcome to Glasgow and to Scotland, whose most globally famous fictional son is almost certainly a man called James Bond who generally comes to the climax of his highly lucrative film strapped to a doomsday device, desperately trying to work out which coloured wire to pull to turn it off, while a red digital clock ticks down remorselessly to a detonation that will end human life as we know it. And we are in roughly the same position, my fellow global leaders, as James Bond today. Except that the tragedy is this is not a movie and the doomsday device is real.
3: Boris Johnson raising a few eyebrows uh, with his talk of uh, James Bond and the 007 bombs.
10: We have the opportunity and we have the duty to make this summit the moment when humanity finally began, and I stress began, to defuse that bomb. And to make this the moment when we, when we began irrefutably to turn the tide and to begin the fight back against climate change.
3: As Boris Johnson, this is the UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres.
10: And it's time to say
2: enough. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. Excellencies. The science is clear. We know what to do. First, we must keep the goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. This requires greater ambition on mitigation and the immediate concrete action to reduce global emissions by 45% by 2030.
3: Okay, that's Antonio Guterres. Uh, COP26, of course, continues today, and I'm sure we'll be hearing lots more from Glasgow throughout the day.
6: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. And now,
3: as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist Gardaí with those investigations. Garda, Alan Kelly joins us from uh, the station in Oldcastle today for this week's report. And we're going to start in Clonmel, where a burglary occurred over the afternoon uh, on Saturday, just gone, in Hartstown.
9: Yes, indeed. Uh, good morning, Michael. Kells, gardai you're investigating a burglary which occurred in Hartstown, Clonmelan, between the afternoon of Saturday, October 23rd and the afternoon of Sunday, October 24th. Now, some of cash was stolen during the break-in, so if anyone saw anything unusual in the area, we are asking them to give Gardaí and Kells a call on 046 928
3: 0820. OK, a uh, fairly brazen act uh, to report on next uh, from Trim and Unusual kind of uh, theft, uh, but uh, one that a uh, are obviously uh, anxious to get uh, some information about. Uh,
9: yes, uh, indeed, boys. Uh, Trim and Gardner, are investigating the theft of gates and piers from a farm entrance right next door to the Mead Centre of Excellence there in Trim. People will be uh, familiar with that location. Between the 30th and the 20th of October, the gates and piers were stolen from the entrance to the field. Gates are approximately 10 foot wide. And galvanised silver in colour. So, again, if anyone noticed any suspicious activity in that area within that time frame of the 13th to the 20th of October, we're asking to give Trim Gardy a call on 046 943 1222.
3: Another burglary to report on in Trim this time.
9: Yes, Trim Gardy are investigating a burglary which occurred at a house in the Blackfire estate, or Blackfriar area rather, of Trim yesterday uh, on October 26th uh, at 645 pm. So anyone, again, who is in the area is asked to contact Trim Trimgarden station.
3: OK, a quad bike stolen then in Balgeith.
9: Yes, uh, Laytown Garely, you're investigating the theft of a quad bike, which occurred in the early hours of Wednesday morning, the 27th of October, uh, from a farmyard at Balgeith, Ardcat in Mead. Uh, a um, fairly distinctive quad bike. Garely, you're looking to speak with any witnesses or anyone in the area who may be able to help and contact them on zero one. Eight zero one zero six zero zero.
3: Next to two burglaries, uh, which uh, Kelsgarde are investigating.
9: Uh, Gardier are investigating two burglaries which occurred in the Rathcarn area, where neighbouring houses were broken into. Michael, between the uh, evening of the twenty seventh of October at six pm and the twenty eighth of October at six pm, so a twenty four hour period. There are two houses side by side. Now Both houses were ransacked, and a small amount of jewellery and cash were stolen. So again, if anyone saw anything unusual. Contact Kells Gardy on zero four six
3: nine two eight zero eight two zero. Okay, and we stay in Kells, and uh, the suspicious circumstances of how a car went on
9: fire. Uh, yes, uh, Michael Gardy and Kells are again investigating a possible incident of criminal damage that occurred at Archdeaconry Kells County Meet at around four twenty a.m. on October thirtieth. So it's the early hours of October thirtieth, where a car went on fire in the Archdeaconry Estate. Now we're asking if anybody saw any persons in the area at that time. Uh, to contact Kells Garden Station again on zero four six nine two eight zero eight two zero.
3: Okay, we've uh, another couple of burglaries uh, to report on. Uh, the first of those uh, occurred in Kells.
9: Yes, in the Sunset Heights Estate in Kells, uh, between October twenty seventh and October thirtieth, so a, a three day period. There, a burglary in Sunset Heights. Uh, so again, if anyone saw anything suspicious, zero four six nine two eight zero eight two zero.
3: And the next in Trim.
9: Uh, Yes, uh, detectives in Trim are investigating a burglary which occurred in the Belfry in Trim, where a substantial amount of jewellery was stolen. Now, this occurred between the 27th of October and the 31st of October 2021. Uh, The rear patio door was smashed and entry was gained. So if anyone saw any suspicious activity in the Belfry area of Trim around that time, we're asking them to contact Trim Gardaí on 046. 943-1-122 943
3: one two. Okay, I'm sure uh, the owner of uh, that jewellery would be very pleased to have it returned. It's something that can't be replaced. Anyway, um, you want to tell us about uh, the next meeting of uh, the Joint Policing Committee. Uh, people are able to attend this by Zoom.
9: Yes, uh, Michael, another important meeting of the Joint Policing Committee and this is taking place, as you say, via Zoom on Wednesday November uh, 17th next at 7pm. So members of the public are invited to attend this virtual public meeting. Now, Michael, the Joint Policing Committee was established under the Garda-Shake-On Act 2005 and the membership of the Joint Policing Committee includes elected members of the County Council, Aroctus members, Garda representatives and community representatives as well and officials from the County Council. So the function of this committee is to serve as a forum for consultations, discussions and, and recommendations on matters affecting the policing of the local authority's administrative area. Now, it's important that members of the public are aware that they have a right to attend this meeting, to have their views heard, and to put put questions to the committee. Now, uh, pre-registration is required, and this can be obtained by sending an email in advance to jpc.meathcoco.ie, and following a receipt of your email, then a a Zoom link will be forwarded to you. And there's also an opportunity for people to put questions to the um, Joint Policing Committee. Questions can be submitted in writing to the community department, uh, Bavinda House, Dublin Road, Navan County Meath are again by email to jpc at And just to say that questions and pre registration requests should be received no later than 4 pm on Friday next and they must include the name and address of the person submitting the request or question, but them them details will be kept confidential.
3: Okay, we have to leave there. We've run out of time, but thank you indeed. Garda, Alan Kelly of Oldcastle, Garda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk again around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.
2: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.